Hello and welcome to the Bible with Megan podcast. My name is Megan and here I talk about the Bible. There are two types of episode in this podcast. The first is where I look at wider themes about the Bible, within the Bible, questions about how we should study the Bible and how it relates to our world. The second type of episode are just Bible studies and each week I'll go chronologically through a book of the Bible. The Bible is such a beautiful book and such an incredible gift that we have been given by God and I just hope that in this podcast you will learn to love studying it even more and that it will strengthen your faith. So let's get on with today's episode. Hello, it's Saturday. That means a new episode in the Revelation study series. This week we are on chapter four, part two. So last week we were in chapter four, part one. And in that, I just read through some of the other Old Testament scriptures that this passage um, draws from. So we just saw that this passage is in in a vacuum. Um, It's referencing other visions that prophets had of the throne room and courtroom of God, which is what John is having here. And also the way that that it's written, the kind of style of literature is bouncing off that as well. It's very clear to the people who would have been reading this originally, they would have picked up on that um, immediately, that this is a prophet and he's having a vision of God's throne room and courtroom. And actually, this is something that qualifies the prophet to then prophesy. Um, If you'd read the Old Testament, you'll see that this is quite often what qualifies a prophet in the role of a prophet rather than someone just doing prophecy, um, is that they have this vision and experience of being in the throne room or courtroom of God. Um, So that's what's going on. And it's it's written in that style as well. John's aware of that. Um, So there's obviously you know, this is a vision that John is having. So there are similarities because he is seeing the actual throne room of God. But equally, he's writing it um, very intentionally and the style he's writing it in. He knows he's writing it in the same style as those um, prophetic books in the Old Testament. So we just have to keep that in mind too. There's two kind of layers here. There's his account of the vision and then there's the way he's presenting it in this kind of beautiful literary way to really get the meaning across of what he saw. Um, And he does that by referencing the Old Testament a lot. Um, If you remember back to one of my first videos on YouTube, which you can go and find on my YouTube channel, I went through the opening vision of Jesus and I just circled all the different Old Testament references and it's chock-a-block full. The whole book of Revelation is. um, It's very, very intentional. John is doing that and so today as we go through this passage I'm going to take the same kind of tact that I've taken so far for this series and that is to look at those Old Testament references um, and also to look at the references to the culture that John was writing within so this kind of Roman Empire culture that he was writing in and that the the letter this book is a letter remember um, is addressed to we spent seven weeks going through the seven churches that it's written to they are there deliberately. It is telling us who the audience is for a reason. We can't just skip over that part and start in chapter four. We need to know who they are. Um, it's going to help us no end in interpreting this. So yeah, that's what's going to be happening from now on. That is how I'm going to approach this study series on this book. Um, we're going to be looking at the Old Testament links and the the cultural links of that period. Um, hopefully, 
by doing that, it gives you kind of a better base understanding of what the book's trying to say to then take it and interpret what that means for the present and for your life and how things play out in the future, etc. We, we can't start there. We need to try and understand this book the best we can within its context before we can then apply it to our current situations. So that's what we're going to do um, as we go through this passage and it is fascinating there is just there's there's so much in it so let's start in verse one i'm not going to read the whole thing through because we did that last time so we'll just go phrase by phrase chapter four starts after this i looked and we'll hear this kind of phrase quite often throughout the book of revelation um john just uses it when he's introducing like a new section of his vision Uh, it's like a transition phrase i guess marks a new a new section, a kind of movement. So we're going here from Jesus's messages to the seven churches into this vision of the throne room. So this is just telling us we're moving on into another part of the vision now. And then he sees um, a door standing open in heaven. In fact, he says, and behold, I looked and behold. And this kind of language is very reminiscent of the Old Testament prophets and that style of writing. If you go and check out Ezekiel chapter one that we looked at last week, you might remember that actually. Um, I looked and behold, um, he's referencing that that this is a prophetic vision, even in that little phrase, that is what's going on here. A door standing open in heaven. So again, this is introducing the fact that he is now moving into a different part of the vision and he's being invited into the throne room in the courtroom of God. And the first voice, which I'd heard speaking to me like a trumpet. So that's referencing back to just the beginning of the book where he has his opening vision of Jesus. So this is Jesus speaking to him. He heard him speaking like a trumpet. So it's not a trumpet sound here. Um, he's just describing Jesus's voice. Uh, it's just worth noting that because some people use this passage to say that this is when the church is raptured. Um, but this isn't a trumpet sound. It's, it's just a, it's just like a metaphor, a simile even. Sorry, it's as like, isn't it? It's a simile. A simile for what Jesus's voice sounds like here. So... Um, it's not an actual trumpet he's just saying jesus's voice sounds like a trumpet it's a kind of like an announcement it's loud yeah that's how you'd use that and he says come up here and i will show you what must take place after this so come up here so we're moving now um in the narrative we're moving from john being on earth um to now going up in the spirit to the throne room so from now on we are getting a heavenly perspective on what is going on on earth a heavenly perspective of what is going on on earth it's important to remember that that's what's going on here he was going to show him what must take place after this it's not what will take place so it's not just that this is a prediction like a timeline prediction of future events um, that's not what the focus is on. The focus is on the fact that this is God's plan, um, his judgment, his divine sovereignty and the completion of, of creation. These things have to come about. The focus is on the justice and glorification of God. So it's not just that we're being given like a timeline, like a little map of things that are going to play out here. 
you know, this will happen, that will happen, this will happen. Like, it's more than that. What's going on here is it's saying everything he's planned to happen, his role as king and judge um, must take place. And that's what this book is about, the justice and glorification of God. Okay, so then John goes on to say in verse 2, at once I was in the spirit. Um, so that might be a bit weird because at the beginning he's already said he was in the spirit on, on the Lord's day. Isn't that what he says? Yeah, in verse 10 he says, I was in the spirit on the Lord's day. So I think it's just, again, it's just telling us about this transition between um, being on earth and then going into heaven and the fact that he's being brought up in in a vision it's not um literally him physically moving to heaven it's it's a prophecy it's something that god is showing him through the holy spirit um so that's what's going on i think he's just he's just flagging that up again here once he was in the spirit the spirit is the one that's responsible for this um vision for the ability for him to see this and behold there's behold again a throne stood in heaven. Now this is referencing back to Ezekiel 1 that we read last week. It's making it super clear that this is the throne room of God. Um, Ezekiel 1 describes what the throne of God looks like. And we're going to see a lot of those similarities pop up in a second here. With one seated on the throne. So there's there's one seated on the throne. I think that's the most important thing, isn't it? In that little phrase, there is one on the throne um, and that is God. So this is the, the main throne of God because we'll see some other thrones pop up in a minute and that the elders are seated on. But this is the throne, um, the throne of God. He is the only one who deserves worship. Um, and this is a theme that we'll see again in a moment. So then John goes on to describe the one who is seated on the throne. So this is God. And he who sat there had the appearance of Jasper and Carnelian. I think I'm saying that right. I'm never quite sure how to pronounce that one. Um, but again, we need to read what it is. <laughs> Sounds silly, doesn't it? But we need to actually read what it's saying here. What does it say? He who sat there had the appearance of Jasper and Carnelian. So it's not saying that God is made of Jasper and Carnelian. He's saying he has the appearance of those things, the appearance of those gemstones. We have to keep an eye out for these words um, in the book of Revelation. You know, there's similes, there's metaphors, there's descriptive language. It's, it's not just a a textbook. I don't know if you've ever had a prophetic vision or dream yourself that, that God has given you through the Holy Spirit. Um, I've had a few and I think if you think of it like that you understand more how John's using language because I've tried after having these kind of visions and dreams and stuff to, to write them down afterwards in my journal to keep a note of them is it's difficult it's difficult because like what you saw you have to like think oh how do i how do i write that how do i write that down in the way that best um communicates what i actually saw and all the meaning behind the things that i saw because it's it's not just like a version of events that's playing out it's so deep and like everything that happens is symbolic and it's like how do i 
how do I write that down to to remember and and you know even when I'm just writing that down in in my own journal just to keep a note of it for the the future me that's takes a lot of thought to write that down um and so John here is writing it down for these seven churches and he probably has a sense that this letter will also be read by other Christians and we're here reading it 2000 odd years later so he's really thought about what he's written and it doesn't take away from the fact that he had this vision I just want to make this point again it doesn't take away from the fact that he had this vision he had this vision but he's thinking really carefully about how he's writing it down to best get across um, the exact experience he had and and in doing that he's using language that he knows people will understand that deeper symbolic meaning of um, and so we have to in the modern day just consider that and just just kind of spend a little bit of time looking into it John is making a point here he's he's deliberately chosen these words to describe what he saw um, and these words have have meaning behind them so jasper and carnelian this this kind of gemstone idea signifies the dwelling place of god um things that are sparkly and glittery if you read the old testament or ancient literature written at the same time as the old testament are associated with divine beings um so the fact that they're gemstones would have been um quite obvious to those readers that this is somebody that is divine um, that is is kingly and royal has these riches um, also these specific gemstones we see um, are in the new jerusalem um, at the end of this book and so this is again a link to say who god is and that he's going to bring the new creation also in the septuagint which is the um greek translation of the old testament so the old testament's written in hebrew but there's a greek translation of it called the septuagint which um new testament christians probably used at that time if they didn't read hebrew um these gemstones are described as being in the tabernacle in the septuagint and also in the garden of eden so this is very clearly linking this person to places where god is you know the tabernacle where God's presence dwells, Eden that is like the first kind of temple on earth to God where his presence dwells with people and then the new Jerusalem that we're looking ahead to where his presence dwells with people um, forevermore. These words are very carefully chosen and they are seeped in meaning and connections and the people who read this at first and John himself writing it down would have known that. So keeping that in mind, let's move on. Um, and around the throne was a rainbow that had the appearance of an emerald. Again, the appearance of. Um, and I think the emerald there is the same kind of thing. It's a gemstone. It's it's that kind of idea of um, this is a, a divine being, a, a spiritual being, and this is a, their throne room, God's throne room. Again, it's, it's just that link. The rainbow then... Um, it's linking to Ezekiel 1, if you remember from last time. Um, but it's also could be linking to God's covenant with Noah. After the flood, God makes a covenant with Noah that he won't um, destroy the earth again, but, but that a remnant will be saved. Um, so it's pointing to God being judge here. Um, it's the same promise that's being made in this 
series of events, um, the things that must take place, um, that a remnant will be saved in the same way a remnant was saved um, with Noah. So that's the kind of rainbow imagery that's probably being in linked back to that God is a God of covenant, he is a judge, um, and he promises salvation and that he he will save people. Um, and in this case, it's the believers who repent and follow Jesus, isn't it? That the remnant. Um, okay, so then around the throne, there were 24 thrones and seated on the thrones were the 24 elders clothed in white garments with golden crowns on their heads. I'm going to leave the elders for a moment. They come up again at the end of this passage. So when we get to them, we will talk about them um, and who they are in a sec. And then it says, from the throne came flashes of lightning and rumblings and peals of thunder. This imagery is again expected. It links to um, the presence of God. It's something called a storm theophany. Theophany is just a fancy word that means when God shows up. So at any point in the Old Testament, especially for example, um, where God shows up in some way, that's a theophany. So when Jacob wrestles the angel of the Lord, theophany. When Moses goes up Mount Sinai to get the um, commandments, it's a theophany. When the three men turn up to speak with Abraham, um, likely a theophany. So if you do a quick Google of it, um, it just defines it as a visible manifestation to humankind of God. And quite often what accompanies these theophanies um, is storm-like stuff. So lightning and thunder and everything. We see that on Sinai. Um, and then it goes on to say about fire. Um, there are seven torches of fire um, before the throne as well. And we often see fire as well as being part of a theophany, um, a pillar of fire in the wilderness. The obvious one is the burning bush, isn't it? With um, Moses, a theophany, God shows up and these kind of stormy, fiery type things and language happens around that. So again, it's just saying this is the presence of God. Um, that's what the point that is being made here. Then it goes on to say that the seven torches of fire before the throne are the seven spirits of God. So I spent a little bit of time looking into this one because in our kind of Christianity, we're taught about the Trinity, how God is Father, Son and Holy Spirit. Um, and so it might be weird to hear that there are seven spirits Um but there's kind of two main interpretations of this. Um, some people think they could be other spiritual beings, like um, members of God's council, divine council. Um, so inferior to God, but, but help him kind of make decisions like part of his courtroom. Um, perhaps I... I think the other interpretation makes more sense about the fire. I think we'll talk about the divine council in a moment. Um, but with these torches of fire, there are seven of them. Now, seven in um, the Hebrew Bible is 
the number of completion. Sorry, I said Hebrew Bible. Old Testament. Hebrew Bible is just another term people use for the Old Testament sometimes. Um, it's the number of completion. So a lot of people argue that this is talking about the Holy Spirit, but because it's seven, it's like the complete, the completeness of the Spirit. Um, and the kind of, although the Trinity has existed that language wasn't quite defined um at this point in time so i think it's just talking about that um there's also a way it could be referencing isaiah 11 um which talks about the spirit of god but it kind of gives the spirit of god seven attributes so spirit of the lord the spirit of wisdom spirit of understanding spirit of counsel the spirit of power spirit of knowledge and spear uh the spear <laughs> I'm going to say the spirit of the fear of the Lord. Um, so there's seven kind of aspects of the spirit, but it's one spirit. Uh, so perhaps that's what it is. I think I think that makes sense. But ultimately, it's talking about the spirit of God being in the throne room. It then goes on to say, before the throne, there was, as it were, a sea of glass like crystal. Again, there's another one of those phrases that we mustn't drift over as it were a sea of glass as it were again it's 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 a symbol it's he's trying to explain what he's seen and the best way he can come up with it is a sea of glass like crystal i mean even in that phrase we can tell this isn't 100 percent accurate you know glass like crystal well is it glass or is it crystal but when this is a symbolic way of speaking and can it can be both they can be both. He's trying to give us the best idea of what he saw. Um, what is going on here? Well, the sea of glass like crystal. I imagine this is reflecting the glory of God. I think this is kind of the the idea that it's just like surrounding the glory of God is being reflected and surrounding the throne. Um, the other idea that could be going on here is in the ancient world and in the bible sea is is kind of um synonymous with chaos and and chaotic stuff and dark stuff because the sea is quite stormy and rough and um and everything so it could be that in this image um the sea is being described as as like glass so like crystal like really still um so it could be pointing to the fact that God has overcome that chaotic uh, waves and everything, the sea, um, and it's speaking into that metaphor to saying it is calmed um, in the presence of God. Okay, so now we are getting on to the four living creatures around the throne. Um, around the throne and each side of the throne are four living creatures full of eyes in front and behind. The first creature like a lion, the second living creature like an ox, the third living creature with the face of a man, and the fourth living creature like an eagle in flight. And the four living creatures, each of them with six wings, are full of eyes all around and within. And day and night they never cease to say, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty who was and is and is to come. Okay. So this might be one of the weirdest things that you've read um, so far in the book of Revelation. Don't worry, it gets weirder. But so far, this is one of the bits that's like, okay. Um, this is basically, seems to be a mashup of Ezekiel 1 and Isaiah 6. So we read them last week and this is one of the main reasons I wanted to. Ezekiel 1 
as you said, describes the throne of God, and the throne is being sort of carried by these cherubim um, creatures. Um, and then in Isaiah 6, we learn about the seraphim, uh, who have the, the wings and, and things. And um, Ezekiel 1 as well, it's the wheels in Ezekiel 1 that describe the throne chariot that are full of eyes. So it doesn't quite match up, but I do think that matters. I think the point is that John's pulling together all of this imagery of different visions of the throne room of God and saying, just to make it really clear to anyone reading, this is the throne of God. Um, this is an immediate reference back to those two passages. So these creatures are some kind of cherubim, seraphim um, type creatures. So what are they? Um, I'm going to link you to a Bible project video on the cherubim and seraphim so you can go and watch that and learn all about them and um, what kind of spiritual beings they are and how they serve God. Um, but yeah, that's that's what's going on here. It's just another point that this is the throne of God. Holy, 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 they say, um, again referencing Isaiah 6. But the point here is that God is the only God to be worshipped. So they are other spiritual beings, but they are worshipping him. We don't worship spiritual beings, we worship only God, only Yahweh, only Jesus. Um, he's the creator and the ruler and the judge who will bring everything to completion. So there's this worship going on in heaven. These spiritual beings are worshipping God and I know this passage is read out often in worship services because that idea is incredible that when we are worshipping God we are joining in with um, his whole the whole load of spiritual beings that are in his throne room his council and and all the beings that serve him all his created living creatures um, whether spiritual or human joining together in worship it's an amazing image isn't it and what an honour it is that we get to do that. Okay, so we are now at the 24 elders. So let me just read this little bit. We've we've already noted that they um, are seated on thrones, that they have white garments and golden crowns on their heads. And then this part says that when the living creatures give glory and honour and thanks to him who is seated on the throne, who lives forever and ever, the 24 elders fall down before him who is seated on the throne and worship him who lives forever and ever. And they cast their crowns before the throne, saying, Worthy are you, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honour and power, for you created all things, and by your will they existed and were created. So a big question among people that read this book is who are the 24 elders? Um, there's a few different interpretations that can be taken, and I'm going to leave another link in the uh, show notes in the description to a podcast by Michael Heiser and he goes into real depth in this he spends a good hour or so um talking about the different interpretations of who the 24 elders are um he'll do a much better job than I can in terms of that and and in thoroughness so if you are interested in this and you really want to think about this and dive into it I'd really recommend that it it's quite heavy um i'd recommend if you're going to listen to it sit down with a notebook or or you can find the transcription of it as well um unless you're really good at remembering things which i'm not i have to take notes but yeah it, it's kind of a lecture format but but the information in it is fantastic so i will link you to that um but basically there's a few different options that um 
that these elders can be. The three main ones is that they are stars, um, or they are glorified human beings, or they are supernatural beings. So the one that's probably most confusing is the one saying there's stars. Um, I'm just going to go back to my notes on the podcast and see if I can give you a quick reason as to why that could be. Basically, in the ancient world, um, people used stars to map time and history. They believed that that, um, stars kind of showed how things were were playing out uh, in the same way people do today in astrology and with the zodiac and everything. That is coming from this ancient world. And so the point here is that um, God is the one who controls the stars and therefore controls history and time that's the point then they're not saying that this is a good way to interpret how things work but they're saying god is the one that's control of history and time and those things represent history and time and so the 24 um elders um could be referencing an ancient idea of there being uh 36 so you're going to have to bear with me a bit. We're going to have to go into calendars a tiny bit. So in ancient Babylon, they believed there were 36 deacons, which were like groups of stars that marked out parts of the sky, and they were rulers of those parts of the sky. Um, and that was because of their calendars and clocks, and everything was kind of based around this. In the Hellenistic world, in the Greek and Roman world, this then became 24 deacons because of the the 12 months, 12 double hours in a day um the modern calendar that we use to 24 deacons it went to so it could be that that john is sort of playing off this um and saying that god is the one who is uh in control of those things those things the 24 elders around the throne could be a kind of like mapped out like a, a clock almost around the throne of god um and that they kind of circle around God and God is the centre of all time and history. So it's 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 not necessarily saying I think there's the difficulty with this. It's not saying those ideas are correct um so much, but it's saying that that these elders that are in heaven um worship God. Does that make sense? I think go and listen to Michael Heiser on that because that's quite that was quite a new idea for me when I when I heard him talking about it and the scholars that kind of looked into it. And um, there's a danger of it that we go too much into this kind of astrology ideas with it. But it's, again, I think it's just bouncing off the cultural ideas of the time and saying, um, using those ideas to say God is the one that is the ruler of all things. Could they be spiritual beings? Well, perhaps, perhaps they are the divine council. The um, We know that the divine council are a thing, that there are these spiritual beings that help God judge um in the same way as in a in a courtroom um and we see them sit on thrones at points um so it could be there's an argument that it can't be that because um they are wearing crowns um but we're just going to check out revelation 6 verse 9 revelation 6 verse 9 um is talking about the fifth seal and when he opened the fifth seal i saw under the altar the souls of those who had been slain for the word of god and for the witness that they had borne. So this could suggest that the elders are spiritual beings because the glorified humans, the martyrs, um, are under the altar. Uh, and these 
beings are on the thrones around the throne of God. So they could be. Um, equally, they, there's strong argument to be made that they are glorified human beings, believers. Um, some people say that they could represent the church, uh, the apostles and the 12 tribes of Israel. The issue I have with that is that the apostles are still alive at this point, potentially, when this is being written. So he's kind of yeah i um yeah there's a there's a question there for you to think about um but we have seen in the previous passage that white garments and crowns are promised to those who overcome who conquer so again that's a possibility and i think a kind of conclusion that michael heiser comes to is that these are all good interpretations they're all helpful because again we have to remember that this isn't um this is a vision and john's trying to describe it in the best way he can it's symbolic of something that is real but the ultimate point that all of these interpretations make is that um there is one who is in control of of all things and that the destiny of believers um is secure however this goes whether it's through the fact that god um, is the one who commands time and history or whether he is the one who will judge with the help of his divine counsel uh, in righteousness or whether these are glorified humans representing the church and, and Israel together um, yeah the ultimate point here is that God is sovereign and I think that's what we have to remember um, these people are worshipping God whoever they are they are also worshiping God. Again, we don't worship them. They are they are servants to God, whoever they are. Um, they are trusted to rule with Him, um, and bring about this judgment with Him. So that's a little vague, I understand, but it's something that is debated. You know, there's there's some passages in Scripture that some people will give you a really quick one-liner answer, and often that isn't the case. There's stuff we really have to to look into and think about and figure out what we think actually works within the whole narrative of scripture um and with reference to the context of, of the text and and everything so if you really want to dive into that please go and listen to michael heiser's podcast on it yes it you know he referenced a lot of scholarly work in it but it, it it's understandable it's not it's not like you'll be too confused you'll get the main points of it he's very good at explaining so I'm going to point you there for that. But I hope that kind of small overview um, helps you. And I'm really hoping I got that uh, kind of cultural stuff correct. Go listen to a real life scholar on that one. Just to make sure if that's something you want to know about. But the point is, this whole chapter, God is on the throne. Um, and this is the beginning of the rest of this vision about uh, God's judgment and the new creation um, and it's all centered around God's um, righteous rule around everything in creation worshipping him is the way it's all meant to be and the fact that he is going to be um, a good judge and he's completing the, the promises and plans he's had um, with this judgment and with the way things are going to pan out um, he's good he's worthy to be worshipped that is the point here isn't it and i think this is why so many people love this passage um 
God is so worthy to be worshipped. He's the only holy one. And of course, we get excited when we read it. Because as we turn and we follow Jesus, we know that to be true. And to worship God is one of the greatest things in our lives. Um, And it's arguably our purpose. Um, So, thank you for joining me going through this passage. I hoped that little run through, it's quite a quick overview. Uh, There's a lot more study you can do into this. But I hope that these references to the Old Testament and some of the cultural context helps you just understand some of the language that John is using to describe this vision. Um, I know it really helped me out. And yeah, go and check out those links in the description if you want to study more into this passage. Next time we'll be moving on into chapter 5, the scroll and the lamb, it's subtitled in my bible. So that's going to be another awesome one um, where we see Jesus's role as judge coming up. So yes i will see you then um also i've now got a website i set up this week if you want to go and check that out it's biblewithmegan.co.uk um it's just my bit of my story on there and there will be more resources added on there over the coming months um so keep an eye on it i'm gonna have some kind of written resources and things like that so yes thank you for joining me today Get out, enjoy the sun, if it's sunny where you are, and I will see you this week. Thank you so, so much for joining me for today's podcast. If you have five minutes to leave a review of this podcast on whatever platform you're listening on, that would be really, really helpful. And it would help more people like us who might enjoy studying the Bible to find the podcast and to join us in our journey. If you'd like to support me in making this podcast financially, you can use the buy me a coffee link that is in the show notes to just donate a little bit towards making these resources. You can also follow me over on Instagram at Bible with Megan or one word where I update everything that's going on and have content on there as well. So I really look forward to seeing you next time for the next episode of the Bible with Megan podcast. Bye.